0: Good morning. Man, it's good to see you all here this morning. Thank you. I received that. If you're visiting with us here this morning, uh, what an honor it is to have you here with us today. If I haven't had a chance to introduce myself personally, my name is Jason. I have the honor of serving as pastor here at Solid Rock Church, um, along with the other elders of whom, whom Ken, who just prayed, is one. And, uh, and so if you're, if you're visiting with us, uh, look around. You're surrounded by an amazing church family, and, uh, and we're glad that you're here. Um, Another thing that I've been thinking about here recently, um, church family at least, um, as fast as we're growing right now, a lot of you probably have come on board here at Solid Rock with even, like the last year even, and so you still feel new. And, and so I was just thinking about this week that from, from week to week, we just need to be in like welcome visitor mode. Um, all of us, you know, remembering how intimidating it can be to walk into a new building and a, a strange new group of people, and yes, we are pretty strange here, um, and, just, and just go that extra mile to welcome folks that you see, introduce yourself before and after services, and if that's you, you're visiting, hey, we're honored that you're here, truly honored. And we're going to be in Genesis chapter 22 in just a moment. If you want to go ahead and start flipping there uh, in your Bible, your phone, your tablet, your gadget, uh, your laptop, whatever you use to get to God's word. Um, If you don't have a Bible, we put uh, black hardback Bibles under the seats around you. And those are there for you. If you don't own a Bible and you want one, that's yours. That's our free gift to you. Take it home. want you to have a copy of God's word. Um, As we get ready to get started this morning, just a couple things. As Ken just prayed, we do have a team on the ground right now in the Philippines. They're out on Dinagat Island uh, doing their thing, ministering in the morning, afternoon, VBS at night. Um, We don't have a whole lot of communication. There's not uh, internet. They don't have cell phone service. So what little bit of information we're getting is coming through a satellite connection. Um, But we hear things are going really well. Continue to pray for them. And, And so also our kids, as Ken prayed, are at kids' camp. Um, and if you've been to kids camp or youth camp, you know what an amazing monumental spiritual experience that can be. Um, even if you don't know any kids who are there, um, as part of our family, just pray for those kiddos and those adult leaders who are sweating it out um, that God would make his, uh, his glory known to these little kiddos. And so um, all that going on right now, midsummer, teachers are probably already feeling the, 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 the timeline coming to an end. School's about to start. Students are feeling that as well. Um, it, is, it is midsummer. Um, but what an amazing summer that we've had so far as a church, and so all the exciting things happening. So here we go. Uh, This morning, we're continuing the Redemption Stories sermon series. If you haven't been here, it's okay. What we're doing is week by week throughout the summer, we're opening God's Word to read about His amazing redemption story that He's writing in our lives, every one of us. And then at the end of the sermon, we're listening to a video testimony from somebody from our church who's going to share a practical example of how this has played out in their life. And so we're going to continue that this morning. You're going to get to hear from Allie Lamb in uh, just a few minutes. Uh, And so this morning, the sermon title is, um, Good Things Make Bad Idols. Good Things Make Bad Idols. Now, to begin thinking about what that even means, um, as God writes redemption stories, and what we mean by that is that, God writes a better story with our lives than we write ourselves. We're, we're really good at, at placing ourselves as the hero of the story and, uh, and trying to manipulate the details to make ourselves look good. But in the end, we're really good at writing a mess, a jumbled up, messy story. And through the grace of Jesus and what he's done for us, God comes in and says, I want to be the author. And so we surrender that story writing to him. And he writes a better story with our lives then we could write ourselves. And what's beautiful about it is he doesn't have to erase the mistakes that we've made. He doesn't have to edit that part out. He redeems those things. And so we call it redemption stories. As God redeems our lives, every one of us, there's this process of having the idols of our hearts refined and eventually burned away from our lives in the way that you would burn uh, impurities out of gold or silver. You heat it up. The impurities come to the top, and then what? They're burned off. Now, as we think about what that means for us, some things about idols that we need to talk about. Idols are really hard to diagnose, okay, for two reasons. One, we don't typically, we aren't typically cognitively aware of when our heart latches onto something and makes it an idol. We tend to think that idols are these golden calves, these statues of gods, and we don't realize that the everyday things of our lives can, and many times have, become idols of our hearts. Things that draw our affections away from Christ and to them. So let's think about what can be an idol. A person. A person can quickly become an idol. Someone that you love so deeply that that all of a sudden they've taken the place of Christ in your life. Could be a a good relationship even, right? A spouse, a child, a child a friend, a family member. And so people can become idols. Things, things can become idols. Automobile, a house, a neighborhood, a lifestyle. Ideas can become idols. Dreams can become idols. Things we're chasing after, things we're working towards. Anything that captures our affection and draws that affection off of Christ and onto it has become an idol. Now, another reason why idols are hard to diagnose is that they oftentimes masquerade in our good intentions. Good things in our life, God-given gifts to us can become and oftentimes easily become idols. So this morning, we're gonna be looking at how good things make bad idols. Genesis 22 is where we're gonna be this morning. Now, background. So we just sang a song and one of the lines in that song Um, calls God the God of Jacob. And so you may not be totally familiar with why we would even call God the God of Jacob. When you hear that phrase, it's mainly an Old Testament title for God. He was called the the God of Abraham, and sometimes he was called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or sometimes just the God of Jacob. And when you hear that title, what is being referred to is this amazing promise that God made first to Abraham, that he was going to bless Abraham, give him children, and eventually build an amazing nation through Abraham's descendants. And that promise got passed on to his son Isaac, and then from Isaac to his son Jacob. And so when you hear God referred to as as the God of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, what we're hearing is this reminder that God made this amazing promise to build a nation, but that's not the end of the promise. God said, not only am I going to build a nation through the descendants of Abraham, I'm going to bless all other ethnicities through this nation which is where we come in. We've been blessed through Christ, who truly was a Jewish Messiah, but he died on the cross, not just for the Jews, but for all of us, truly blessing the nations. And so when we start reading in Genesis 22 to kind of have an understanding, we kind of need to know a little background about who Abraham is and what the promises that God has made. So we're gonna start in verse one of chapter 22 in Genesis. After these things... God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and Abraham responded, here I am. So a couple of things we need to look at first, after these things, after what things? So the conversation with Abraham, between Abraham and God, began in Genesis 12, 1, where God speaks to Abraham, he's a, he's a married man at this point in life, um, he's an older gentleman, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, were were unable to conceive and have children, um, but he had already um, had had began to manage life in such a way. He had acquired wealth and livestock and and land. He was still living in his father's uh, region, his father's land. And so God speaks to Abraham out of the silence, and and Abraham says, yes, Lord. And he says, here's the deal, Abraham. I want to bless you. God says, I want to bless you. He says, I want to do something good for you, something you don't deserve. I want to bless you. I want to I want it to take you and your wife who have no children. I'm going to bless you with children. Those children are going to become a great nation. And then through those children who become a great nation, I'm going to bless the nations. That's the promises of Genesis 12. Now, first off, um, Abraham's first response was, okay, God, let's go. He packs up his things and he goes. But just shortly after that, same chapter, we see Abraham taking things into his own hands, And he begins to lie about his wife, calling her his sister so he doesn't get killed. And so from Genesis 12 to Genesis 22, where we're reading, several big things have happened. The next thing Abraham does, he says, well, my wife, she's kind of old. So, and she's barren. So in order for this promise to be fulfilled, I better, again, take things into my own hands. And so I'm going to conceive a child with her maidservant. Maybe that's what God meant. So he does that. God speaks again. Abraham, that's not what I meant. I'm gonna, I made you a promise. I'm going to fulfill it through your wife, Sarah. And then after that, they conceive, they have a child. Now, in Genesis 22, God's gonna ask Abraham to do something with that child that's incredibly remarkable. Look at what he says. So, verse one again, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Now, before we get to verse two, one other thing I wanna note. God is initiating a test here, right? I mean, the word clearly says that. God's going to test Abraham. What's interesting is last week in 1 Peter 1, we read about God testing us, didn't we? That God tests our faith through various trials, refining us in the similar way that you refine gold. And so the same God who's speaking in 1 Peter 1 is speaking here, and so he's initiating a test for Abraham to test his heart and to test his faith. And here's what he says to Abraham, verse 2. And he said, Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, when I read that, it makes me cringe a little bit. I'm a dad. If I just for one minute try to put myself in Abraham's shoes and imagine God telling me to take one of my boys to the land of Moriah, and when I get there, God's going to show me which one, which mountain to take my son up on and to offer as a burnt offering. That makes me cringe a little bit. And that's what we hear when we read this, right? But here's what Abraham's hearing when God says this. So we read, Abraham, take your son up on the mountain and kill him. Here's what Abraham, I believe Abraham's hearing. He's hearing the voice of God saying, Abraham, do you trust me? Abraham, do you trust me? Now, why would I hear it that way? Because, see, I have to read Genesis 22 in light of all that's happened so far. And Isaac wasn't given to Abraham um, as a fulfillment of Abraham's crying out to God, God, give me a son so I can be happy. Isaac doesn't just represent momentary joy in Abraham and Sarah's life. Isaac represents an amazing promise that will affect the nations and all of eternity. And so this isn't a question of, right, of of whether or not, um, Abraham, have you been been stewarding well this precious gift I have for you? And, And Abraham's now challenged, but God's saying to Abraham, Abraham, do you trust me? Because if you trust me, I'm gonna ask you to do something kind of crazy here. I'm gonna ask you to do something that may not make sense to you, and it certainly won't be compatible with the longings of your heart. Has God ever put you in that position? He's called you, asked you, convicted, and challenged you to do something that maybe didn't make sense cognitively and challenged the longings of your heart. Went against what you wanted, Went against what you longed for. Went against what made sense to you. See, the the challenge here in Abraham's mind is, do you trust me? Now, Genesis chapter 22, verse 3, we read the account. So verse 3 says, So Abraham, he rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So what we're getting now is not only was Abraham willing to trust God and go, he seems to have no apprehension about it. He he gets up early. He cuts the wood. He gets two of his young men ready to go, he packs up, gets Isaac and he's headed out and from what we can tell from this vantage point is he intends to obey God, right? Right? But but here's what we have to understand. This isn't a child that Abraham doesn't love. This is his only son in whom he loves. So verse 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So, here's what I want us to take from that. One, I'm just trying to imagine being a dad in this scenario. I'm not really sure what's about to go down, but I don't know that I want anybody else around. And whatever's about to go down, it's going to be between me and the Lord. Because here's the thing these young men, they probably aren't going to get this, right? Could you imagine being one of those young men? This is your boss. He said, hey, we got a work project. You're going to need to come with me, and we're going to do some traveling. And then, oh, the point of this project is I'm going to kill my son. Right? You guys stay here. You're not going to get this, right? Because you, don't, you didn't have this conversation with God. It's not going to make sense to you. Matter of fact, you might try to get in the way. Stay here. Stay with the donkey. Me and the boy are going up. But did you hear what he said? We're going to worship and then do what? Then we're going to come back. Now, that's incredibly confident, isn't it? He goes on to say this, verse six, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. So packs it up, bundles it up, probably places it, straps it to his back. And he took his, in his hand the fire and the knife and they went both of them together. Verse seven, now here's what we know about Isaac. He is not a toddler anymore. He's grown up to the point where he can not only articulate his questions and feelings, he's able to cognitively process what's going on. Can you imagine? Parents? Right, now it's beginning to not make sense to your kiddo. Look at what he says, verse seven. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, son. He said, Behold, this is Isaac speaking, I see the fire and I see the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? So Isaac has beginning to process what's happening here. We're going, we're gonna go do, we're gonna go provide or give a burnt offering to God. He was very familiar with what was taking place, but something was missing. Where's the lamb? Now I'm trying to imagine right now being dad in this scenario? How do you answer that question? Because see, you can leave the young guys and the donkey behind, but Isaac goes with you. Look at what he says to his son. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went both of them together. Now, if you know the story, you know what's going to happen. But at this point in the story, we don't have any indication that Abraham isn't going to go through with this with Isaac. And so when he says God will provide the lamb, that's literally how, how Abraham was seeing his child as something God had provided. Meaning what? Isaac, you don't belong to me. I love you. I call you my own, but ultimately you are the fulfillment of a promise from God. Now, parents, that's a challenging way to see our children, isn't it? So in this story we go, well, surely God would never call me to take my child up on the mountain and burn them, right? But how about this? How about let your children go on a mission trip? How about just letting your children go to school at all in this day and age? Letting your children, right? Trusting your children into the hands of God and what he has planned for them in a way that supersedes even your love and protective nature over them. You begin to feel the tension, don't you? See how idols capture our affection in such a way that they control us oftentimes and compete with our obedience and our trust of who God is. And so God is speaking to Abraham saying, Abraham, I see that you love your son, but the question is, do you love your son more then you trust me. And his son says, dad, what in the world is going on? And in that moment, Abraham says to his son, here's the thing, and probably going on in his mind, Isaac, I can't fully explain what's going on. And I probably don't even have the courage or the words to tell you what God told me to do, but here's what I can say. Whatever we're gonna go do, the Lord will provide. Whatever it is, whatever's gonna take place on that mountain, God will provide. And I wonder this as a parent, like, am I setting this example for my children? that they would see this level of trust in me when my boys ask me these big questions. Do I quickly default to how I'm gonna solve problems, how I'm gonna protect them? When we're laying down to pray at night and one of them says, I'm scared, daddy. Am I quick to say, it's okay, daddy's gonna protect you? Or am I quick to say, God's gonna protect you? just trying to imagine this kind of relationship here where children go up, grow up knowing that their parents love them, but they trust God more than they love their own children. Now look at what happens next as we get ready to, to move forward. Um, we've heard two statements from Abraham that sound pretty confident, right? He told us two guys, hey, I'll be back, me and the boy. We're going to go worship. We're coming back. And now he's just told his son God's going to provide. And so my question, is, I'm a dad. Where do do you get this kind of confidence? What is it rooted in, Abraham, that you could go through with this? I've said this before, and and I'll share this with you again. I don't know how familiar you are with the Bible, but um, in the New Testament, there's a book called Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews in the New Testament is an incredible commentary on the Old Testament. It explains many of the things that happened in the Old Testament, many of the stories many of the worship traditions of the Israelite nation. And this is one such story that we get some really good insight into what is going on in Abraham's heart in this moment. In Hebrews chapter 11, we read about Abraham. And in verse 17, the author of Hebrews says this about this moment that we're reading about. He says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, who he had received, uh, excuse me, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son. Now let's stop right there. So there was no intention from Abraham to bail, right? He doesn't have in the back of his mind plan B, right? So he's not just going through the motions, waiting to get to the last minute, and then then bailing on, on God's plans to initiate his plans. He was in the middle of doing this. Is what God's word says. But not only that, look at verse 18. So the son that he's offering up, verse 18 says, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. God had made a bigger promise here. Verse 19, about Abraham. He considered that God was able. And we can really just stop right there. Now we know what was going on in Abraham's heart. He fully intended to go through with this. At the same time, he saw Isaac as a fulfillment of a promise God that had made that was huge. And he knew that ultimately, even if he couldn't explain it to these helper, these men who went with him, even if he couldn't explain it to his son, even if he couldn't explain it to himself, his faith hinged on this idea: God is able. God is able. Now we read from the rest of Hebrews eleven nineteen. 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did raise him or receive him back. So ultimately God knew, or Abraham knew that God had made a promise and he meant to keep it. I don't know how he's gonna keep it, but he's gonna keep it. Did it make sense to Abraham? I don't think it did. Did he have a good answer for his son? No, but it reflected where his trust was, didn't it? God is able to provide. And from Abraham's perspective, even if he went through with it, God was able to resurrect Isaac from the dead. Now, verse nine, here's what happens. Verse nine, when they get to the place, they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid wood in order to bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, if it wasn't tense enough, I mean, he's on the cusp right here of doing something incredibly hard. Talk about putting faith to the test right here, right? Have you ever been to that moment in life where you truly had to rely on your faith? That pivotal moment where if I take one more step forward, it is purely based on my faith and trusting what God has promised. That's where Abraham is right now. I mean, he's just one step away. And here's what God does. Verse 10, Abraham reached out his hand. He took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said. Now, this is the third time he's used these words in this story. And I feel like this is a sense of relief right now for Abraham. I really do. Here I am. Pause button. I'm right here. What? Change of plans? Hopefully, right? What, God? Here I am. I've done what you've asked. Here's Isaac. He's on the altar. We built it. He's bound to it. The fire, the knife, they're right here. God, here, here I am, God. God speaks through the angel, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Now what we have in this story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22, on one hand, is an amazing foreshadowing of what's to come this amazing story that's going to happen thousands of years later where God himself sends his son, Jesus, to the altar to die. God the Father, who loves his one and only son, right, sends his son to die a death that doesn't make sense, that goes beyond reason for those in whom he loves. Now, at the same time, though, this is a very real moment for Abraham. He's not picturing, right, Jesus and a cross and those sorts of things. All he knows is I hear the voice of of my father in heaven and I'm either going to believe him or I'm not. And so far in the story, there's been plenty of times where Abraham didn't believe God and he took things into his own hands. And now God says, what? I'm going to test you. I'm going to purge your faith here. I'm going to refine you. And here's what we read as we continue on. Abraham lifted his eyes in verse 13, and he looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, let's talk for just a minute because what we've just witnessed by this account is Abraham, a man who believed God, being brought to a place of testing to where he's challenged to either lay down his love for his son by trusting in God or to lay down his trust from God and to take a hold of his love for his son. As a dad, I'm having a harder time imagining a more challenging decision to be made. And what Abraham does is he builds an altar and lays down his idol, the love he has for his son in trust of God and puts it on the altar. Now, here's what I'm wondering today. I'm wondering what idols, I wonder what idols we have in our own lives today. I wonder what things, objects, or ideas have so subtly become idols in our own hearts. Just wonder what it is that would challenge you today, whether or not you're going to lay down your love for that thing, that person, or this idea, and trust God. You know, we get some examples in the New Testament of good things that make bad idols. I can think of a couple of examples. One is the, um, the story we call the rich young ruler. Um, it's, a, it's a story of a highly moral and a successful man who comes to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, I want to get in the kingdom so he said, I need to know what I need to do to get in the kingdom. And so Jesus starts talking to him about morality and obeying the 10 commandments. And evidently this guy was a pretty moral guy. And so he holds up his morality as an idol. He says, Jesus, look what I've done. I, I actually obey the 10 commandments, unlike all these other people around here. Jesus said, wow, that's fantastic. Good job. There's still one thing you lack though. I need you to go home and sell all your stuff and give it to the poor and then come back. And I want you to follow me. And then what do we read right after that? The man goes away sad because why? He had many possessions. And so for that guy, his possessions were the idol, right? His love and his affection for his stuff superseded his willingness to believe and trust the Lord Jesus. I think about a more subtle example with the story of Mary and Martha. Maybe some of you ladies can relate to this one. You probably know the story all too well. Two sisters, two sisters, they are housing Jesus. He has come to their house to hang out and to stay and to eat and be with them. And so you've got one sister busy in the kitchen, serving Jesus, getting dinner ready, cleaning up, making sure everything's nice and neat and ready to go. And then you've got another sister, Mary, who's what, doing what? She's, she's sitting on her duff in the living room, hanging out with Jesus. And if you read this story, what happens is Martha gets angry. She gets angry. She's perturbed. Why? Because serving Jesus right now is the most important thing, and you're in there on your duff, just hanging out, not helping me. And then she goes so far as to tell Jesus, Jesus, will you tell my sister to get off her duff and get in here and help me serve you? I love it. And Jesus says what? Martha, Martha, (laughs) Martha, Martha, you are worried about a lot of stuff. But your sister has chosen the better thing. See, even our serving Jesus can become an idol. Even our volunteering and serving other people and working at the church, even those things can become idols, right? Good things that when they compete with our love of Jesus, right, can become idols. I was thinking of a more practical example, even here in our own church, this happened years ago, and uh, I won't share the names of this story. Most of you wouldn't know them anyway. They, they don't go to church here anymore, but was in a counseling situation with, with a young man who was a young father and um, a husband. And um, this particular individual had um, committed some sin, but he had done it at work, and he had broken company policy. And so through confession to his spouse and to the ministry staff here at the church, we had surrounded his family, loved on them, counseled with him, encouraged him that, hey, the, the way you get past this is confession and openness, and because this happened at work, you really need to go talk to your boss. Now, can you imagine, guys, being in that scenario? your boss has no idea, and if you don't go tell him or her, they'll never find out, and I'm gonna tell you, and this was a wrestling match for a few days for this particular young man, what, right, what could, what might happen, I might, I might lose my job, I mean, at the very best, I might get demoted, or I'll never be trusted again, there's no way I can go, right, and tell my boss, I did this here at work, I might lose everything, it was a wrestling match for a few days, I'll never forget praying for this young man as he wrestled with whether or not he was going to go do this. And ultimately what it boiled down for him was what? Do I trust God more than I trust in my ability to provide for myself? He was in a very similar position. Do I truly trust God to provide? Right? Who gave me this job? Who gave me the ability to get this job? Do I trust him more than I trust in my ability to keep this job? And here's the thing, praise God. He shared it with his employer. The employer took it really well. I don't know that he fully understood because I don't think he was a believer why this young man had to come confess this to him, but he did it. He kept his job. The Lord blessed him. But even, you know, we look at the story of Abraham, but Abraham was prepared. Even if this doesn't work out the way I want it to work out, I'm still gonna trust God. So here's the question for us today. What are the things in our lives that have become idols that compete with our affection for Jesus and our ability to trust him? Maybe he's called you to go share the gospel with somebody and you're afraid if you do, you'll lose that relationship. Maybe he's called you to to switch career paths, change jobs. Maybe he's called you to go on the next mission trip or by all means, maybe God's calling your family to pack up and move permanently as missionaries. Maybe you're a teenager here today and you're in a toxic relationship and God's calling you to let go of it. You're afraid if you do, you'll lose whatever sense of identity you had and this feeling of being loved or wanted. And and God's saying, listen, you're gonna trust me or you're gonna trust in yourself in this moment? I wanna take a moment now to let you hear from Allie Lamb. We're gonna listen to her story as she shares about how good things have become bad idols in her life. Take a moment, if you guys are ready, let's roll her video.
1: Fort Worth Texas Um, my parents love the Lord so much and I am thankful to have been raised in a home where his presence was always near through their relationship with him Uh, when I was eight I began my personal relationship with Jesus and at 16 I felt a very strong calling to mission work outside of my bubble of Fort Worth Texas from then I was given opportunities to to leave Texas uh, one to two times a year on different trips to to share the gospel over the next several years through high school and on into college, God provided opportunity and provision and calling to be a part of his ministry in various locations. I loved being a part of the calling that um, Christ gives all of us to go and to make disciples of every nation. However, because of my pride and my arrogance um, with which I struggle, I, I allowed these trips and these experiences and these ministry opportunities to become a sort of a crutch. It, it was almost as if I was only close to God and near to Him and in His presence when I was doing something um, in ministry outside of the ministry. And because of this, uh, I I began to to ignore the promptings of the Holy Spirit on my life as far as where He would have me go in the ministry that He would have me partake in. I feel like a common misconception among um, believers who have grown up as a part of the church is that if you're doing something that is good, then it's definitely in the will of God. But when God is, is asking you to relinquish your grip on those good things and you refuse, then those things are no longer good. Uh, one summer, I took a position overseas. I had felt that God was gently closing that door all year long, but I stuck my greedy fingers in and pried it open. I spent the summer behind a camera documenting others sharing the love of Christ. I documented others getting to partake in this ministry that had become so dear to my heart. And God's glory was was shown and His work was done and His name and His gospel was proclaimed, but I was merely a spectator at this point. I was no longer an invited participant. I was just watching others do what my heart had desired to do when i returned to the u.s i felt very empty and very far from god and very angry with him i felt that he had shorted me that um, he owed me something for my service and he had not delivered and so god allowed me to feel the pains of growth through that i fell into a depression and uh, a dark night of the soul in which I just had lost my affections for worship and for ministry it was it was a hard time and a time when I felt like I had really lost myself and my identity. During that time of just kind of feeling lost and depressed um, there were Sundays I was away at college and um, didn't have a lot of accountability whether or not I was going to church and so I just, Stopped waking up on Sunday mornings. I had no private prayer life, um, no um, time spent in the Scripture. And about a year later, of after God um, pursued me, He re- restored to me the joy of my salvation. He broke me of my pride and my selfishness, and the way that I had allowed it to blind me and he opened my eyes to the fact that he writes a greater story than i do and in exchange i handed over the the pen to my story that he may write a better one that i i would rather be a footnote in his glorious epic tale than the starring role in anything that i could write he has redeemed the calling that he's put on my life to do ministry and to do his work in Fort Worth and outside of Fort Worth. He constantly is having to to gently guide me back to this truth as my pride and my arrogance and my, my need to control are constantly a battle that I am fighting, but I do not fight it on my own and of my own will, but with the Holy Spirit in me and through me, and there's such freedom in realizing that God is sovereign, and that God knows all and is in control of all. Because when I try to take that role, then life only goes as far as I do. It only goes as far as my time and my ability, which is not far. My name is Allie Lamb, and this is my redemption story.
0: Amen. 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 Appreciate Allie, as well as all the others who've done redemption stories, their willingness to be vulnerable and honest with us so that we could uh, learn not just about them, but how God does truly redeem. And so I think that right now, the question that that lands on all of us is, where are my idols? And I get oftentimes asked in counseling, how do you know where your idols are? How do you determine where your idols are? And so there are three questions that I typically will ask, at least of myself and others, to help kind of determine where your idol might be. Here's one of them. The first question is this, what do you love deeply? What do you love deeply? And be slow to answer that. Think about it. What truly captivates your affection? I was riding in the car with my youngest son, who's five, this past week, and uh, we, we play this game. We're in the car, and we talk about different things, and he said, um, Daddy, just out of the blue, those precious moments, I love you with all my heart. I said, that's awesome, Calvin. He said, Daddy, I love you more than anybody else on earth. Of course, he was with me. He'd have said that to my wife if he'd been with her. And I said, well, Calvin, I love you too. And he, but then he proceeded to ask me, Daddy, do you love me more than anything else on earth? And I hesitated, I started to go the route of saying, well, son, I love you and your brother Hudson and your mommy all the same. And I love y'all more than anything else on earth. And I really sensed in that moment, the Holy Spirit of God prompting me to say what was true. And so I said back to Calvin, I said, Calvin, I love you and your brother and your mother more than any other people here on earth, but not quite as much as I love God. And it hurt his feelings, which was what I wanted to avoid hurt his feelings for a minute. And I could tell he didn't like that answer. And I said, and Calvin, I appreciate you telling me that you love me, but could I tell you something? Daddy wants you to love your brother and your mommy and your daddy with all your heart, but not more than God. And here's what happened in my heart. I don't know what's happened in his little five-year-old heart. He was probably playing with Legos in his mind or something, right? (laughs) I felt myself get jealous for a minute. I did I got jealous of telling my son to love God more than he loves me. But I know this is true. If he will love the Lord his God with all of his heart, mind, and strength, more than anything else or anyone else here on earth, he'll be be a better father. He'll be a better husband. He'll be a better friend. He'll certainly be a more faithful Christ follower, and he will make a more significant impact on this world than if I have that place in his heart. And expose a little idol there for me, for a moment. Another way we can diagnose where our idols are. Where are your fears, men? We don't answer this one very well, do we? I'm not scared of nothing. Okay, whatever. Seriously, what are you afraid of losing? Maybe you have a reoccurring nightmare. Might might indicate where an idol might be. What is it that scares you to death if you ever could imagine losing? A person, a thing, a position, an accomplishment. You might be pretty close to an idol if you can figure that out. And I think this third thing too is an all too often uh, telltale sign. What makes you gut-wrenching angry? Not the kind of angry that you pin on God whenever you see some kind of injustice. You know what I'm talking about, the selfish kind of angry. And maybe we need to ask your spouse this question. They might be able to answer this one a little bit better. But what is it that gets you from zero to 60 angry? Because truth might be, you might be close to an idol. And so we notice at the end of the story with Abraham that he renames the place of the altar, right? He renames it and calls it the Lord will provide. And so the question for us today is what needs to be renamed in our lives? What good things has God blessed you with? that you need to rename and start calling these things, God has provided this. This relationship, maybe it's a good relationship. Praise God for that. Appreciate it, enjoy it, steward it well, right? But don't let it become an idol. Maybe you've been blessed with an amazing job or career. You get to do something that you really enjoy and you really feel like God's using you in this world. Enjoy that, steward that well, but maybe you need to rename it not my job. Maybe you need to rename it the job the Lord has provided. Maybe you've been blessed financially. Maybe you've been blessed with amazing possessions and these sorts of things. And maybe the problem isn't that God's blessed you with them. It's that you call them yours. You say, my house, my stuff. Maybe those things need to be renamed today. The things that the Lord has provided. And So there are two ways that we see in scripture that God extracts idols out of our hearts. Okay. The one we read about last week, 1 Peter 1 and James 1, he uses trials of various kinds to refine the idols out of our hearts, okay? The second way that God does it is just what we just read here in Genesis 22. His Holy Spirit comes to you, speaks to you, and says to you, listen, you need to let go. Now, both are hard, right? Both are hard, but maybe today you sense the Holy Spirit of God saying to you, there's something good I've blessed you with that has captured your affections in a way that it means more to you than I do. So here's what I want to do. I want to invite the worship team to come back up and I'm going to pray for us that we could spend some time truly thinking about what are those things that capture our affections, those things that we're, we're driven to hold on to in such a way that they've become idols to us that we love more and we trust more than even God himself. So let's pray together. Um, Father, we bow in in prayer this morning because we, we truly believe. We do. We believe that you're real. We believe that you are all knowing. We believe that you are all powerful. God, those of us you know, who are Christians today, we believe that all the good things in our life come from you. And so, God, it's so ironic when we change the good things that you've blessed us with into idols. And and honestly, God, none of us walked in today ready to admit that we have idols. Matter of fact, even still, some of us are struggling to admit that and to, to figure out what those things are. But God, we know our hearts are just like Abraham's. We're prone to latch onto your good gifts, to love them more than we love you. So what I wanna ask right now, Father, is something that only you can do. Would you send your Holy Spirit right now into this place? And would you allow your Holy Spirit to speak to us, to bring to the surface, to bring to our minds things that have become idols to us. Would you give us the courage this morning to build an altar, to lay those good things down even if it goes beyond what makes sense to us, even if it's not compatible with the affections in our heart, if we just lay those things down, God, based on one simple truth, we trust you. Thank you for being a good, good father. Now, God, any person in the room, maybe that doesn't know you personally, I wanna pray that today would be the day that they would come to you to pray to you say, God, I'm ready to lay it down and trust you with everything that I am. If that's you and you're here today, I want you to know that to become a Christian, it simply means that you believe. It simply means that you believe and you trust that God is who he says he is and he's done what he says he has done for you. So if you wanna begin a relationship with God, you could stand in a few minutes and and walk to the back and talk to one of our prayer partners. You could even just pray right now where you're seated. I don't wanna put words in your mouth, but it could go something like this. God, today I choose to believe. God, I choose to to recognize that up until this point in my life, I've primarily trusted in myself and, and that's only taken me so far. God, now I'm ready to trust you. I trust that your son Jesus has died for my sins trust that believing in him will provide for me forgiveness, eternal life, an amazing relationship with you. And I'm ready to start that relationship right now. God, we surrender this time to you now. You do what you want to do with it. Move us, work in us, awaken us, convict us, challenge us, encourage us, God. We lay ourselves before you now. Holy Spirit, come. We pray in Jesus' name.